This is QD Clinic. Hi, I'm Jack Cushwood, RoomNow.com. QD Clinic is brought to you by RoomNow Live. Great meetings like this are attended by great rheumatologists like you. It's going to be January 27th and 28th in Dallas. It's a few months away. Be sure to register. Today's case is pleuritis in rheumatoid arthritis. Kind of an easy case, don't you think? 37-year-old woman presents with a two-day history of chest pain, uh, difficulty breathing. It's on the right side. She's had rheumatoid arthritis for four to five years. Um, she was doing well. She was taking standard medicines, methotrexate, prednisone, uh, TNF inhibitor, a little bit of salogen, pilocarpine. And then she developed two days ago this dyspnea um, some orthopnea. She said she felt like she was going to face faint when she took a deep breath. It got progressively worse. Uh, it was worse with inspiration and with lying down. Uh, she went to a, a drive-in clinic, not the emergency room. They did a chest x-ray, said she had pleural effusions. A day later, she went to the emergency room where she was diagnosed with pleuritis and some pericarditis based on the chest x-ray and also on an echo. The echo showed a moderate pericardial effusion with um, a normal ejection fraction and no evidence of tamponade. Her history was that for rheumatoid arthritis with some evidence of sicka symptoms for which she was supposed to take pilocarpine three, four times a day and was just taking a PRN. Um, she has no other medical uh, illnesses uh, other than childbirth. Um, she has no uh, consequences to her uh, almost Sjogren syndrome. Uh, she denies diabetes, hypertension, heart, heart disease, uh, other infections, recent infections, or other new drug use. Her medicines, uh, she's treated with methotrexate, hydroxychloroquine, um, uh, I believe etanercept in the past. Uh, now she's taking methotrexate 17.5 milligrams a week, golimumab um, 50 milligrams a month, prednisone 5 milligrams a day, and as I said, PRN pilocarpine. When you ask her further history, she has no recent infection, not taking antibiotics, denies fever, uh, actual syncope, visual changes, edema, etc. When you do her labs, she's got a CRP that's normal, but the SED rate is 57. She's strongly positive for rheumatoid factor and CCP. She has a little bit of a lymphopenia at 900. Her ANA is positive 1 to 160 uh, in a homogeneous pattern, and her double-stranded DNA is negative. She undergoes thoracentesis in the emergency room. They relieve, relieve 1.5 uh, liters of straw-colored transudative fluid from her chest. She feels much better. They put her on prednisone. The question is, why does she have pleuritis? What's the differential diagnosis? Um, I must say, I, I immediately rushed to TNF inhibitor-induced drug-induced lupus, which turned out to be the right diagnosis. But I think you have to go through the process of what else could this be? And I think you have to recognize RA comes with a fairly good risk of lung disease. And RA pleural effusions, I must say, I saw a few of in my early days of rheumatology. I haven't seen a RA pleural effusion in probably 25 years. But if it happens, you know, the test question answer 
is that you get low glucose in either pleural or pericardial fluid when it's due to RA, and that could be a diagnostic clue. You can make another other diagnostic clues by finding you know rheumatoid factor in there or by um, doing pleural biopsies, looking for distinctive findings of rheumatoid arthritis, mainly nodule kind of findings. Um, but honestly, no one really needs to have a pleural biopsy to make this diagnosis. However, if it's um, other important, other diagnoses with RA, recurrent pneumothorax, um, I've had a few of those, and they're always due to nodules that invade the uh, bronchi and lead to pneumothoraces. Uh, Uh, alveolar hemorrhage uh, related to underlying pneumonias. Um, RA patients, um, either the therapies you're using, getting opportunistic infections. TB is tops on the list, and that also gives you a low glucose. Um, but other Fungal infections will do this, and that are, those are more likely with TNF inhibitors than other biologics. The other biologics, you know, the non-TNF biologics and JAK inhibitors don't really cause opportunistic infections that like this that would lead to, I mean, you can get infections, serious infection, but opportunistic infections, again, you know, everything from candida to um, MAI to uh, leishmaniasis, again, that's going to be a TNF inhibitor driven risk much more so than with abatacept, IL-6 inhibitors, IL-1 inhibitors, uh, JAK inhibitors, and even rituximab. You have to worry about malignancy because uh, especially if the patient's over um, age 40 or age 50, this patient's young and 37, you have to worry about the co-occurrence of lupus. Maybe, I mean, there are those patients who get rupus, R-H-U-P-U-S, and this might be one such scenario. Uh, and then lastly, uh, drug-induced lupus, um, with TNF inhibitors being probably the most common cause of drug-induced lupus these days. Um, you know, the list is available on ruminology.com. Look for the ruminology card at the top of the page. Um, they got a list uh, of, of drugs that cause uh, this. The historic risks were with hydralazine, procanamide, quinidine, you know, alpha methadopa, uh, but also now the most common ones I think are really going to be, let's go with the uncommon ones still. Um, uh, isoniazid, penicillamine, dilantin, tegretol, thorazine, lithium, um, sulfazalazine, beta blockers. Uh, I think the more common ones these days are tetracyclines uh, and TNF inhibitors. Also, but I guess maybe, maybe the TB drugs, but um, ACE inhibitors, TNF inhibitors, ticlodipine, um, there is this other kind of drug-induced lupus that where they manifest with subacute cutaneous lupus-like lesions, either papular squamous or the um, psoriasiform lesions. And that's not uncommon when you're using a PPI, like omeprazole, uh, hydrocorthiazide, and also ch calcium channel blockers. In this woman, she was on a TNF inhibitor. She was doing well. We had to switch her to another drug. She's done fine on the alternative other non-TNF biologic uh, and this problem resolved. She took steroids for probably four weeks, 
uh, and went back to her at a higher dose. I think she was given initially some IV in the hospital and then was given like 40, 30, 20, 10, and then back to her daily five. Uh, get, the real problem is getting off for five milligrams of prednisone, is it not? Anyway, that's it for this case and QD Clinic. Again, go to roomnow.live and check out our program and agenda. I think you'll like it. Bye. This is QD Clinic. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live, January 27, 28, next month in Dallas. Be there. Today's case is eosinophilia in rheumatoid arthritis. I don't know that we ever talked about that, and I saw that in clinic the other day, and I thought, well, we should probably bring that up. It came up in the context of a 46-year-old woman who has had rheumatoid arthritis for about 14 years. She's currently taking etanercept weekly and just Tylenol, um, three or four a day. Uh, she's fairly well controlled. She says she's doing good. Morning stiffness, less 10 minutes. She sleeps well. Her pain level is a two. Um, she has occasional pain in her wrists and elbow and rarely the right ankle. Um, and, you know, I go through the exam and I find, I think, a few, maybe two tender joints, no swollen joints, no nodules, no extra-articular manifestations, no sign of disease activity. And her labs are pretty normal, normal chem profile, um, a sed rate that's normal at 13, a normal complete blood count, Y count 9,000, um, hemoglobin 13, platelet counts 315. She's got an eosinophil count of 765. And normal is up to 500. So what's going on there? Am I going to make any changes in her therapy? No. Her RA is, is stable. It's been stable for a while. And she's doing well. She's not taking any other um, drugs, per se. But then on further questioning, I find out, wait, she's taking an inhaler. She has a history of asthma. She has a history of eczema. So that's the probable cause here. But the story really is that RA patients can get eosinophilia too. Let's look at her past medical histories and see if there's a clue there. She's got NASH, eczema, obesity, prior latent TB that was treated um, by me, um, depression, and occasional GERD. So other than my giving her, you know, a systemic eosinophilic disease, um, this is going to be due to RA or her atopic disease and asthma, right? I don't think she has eosinophilic esophagitis. That's a new one, right? Um, but let's go with differential diagnosis of eosinophilia in RA. It does happen. First, if you look at the literature on this, a lot of that comes from countries where there's a lot of parasites. And you've always got to exclude that. So if your patient comes from, you know, as outside the United States and where they were born, where they were raised, and where they've lived most of their life, parasites are a reality. In um, one study from a foreign land um, that I think appeared in ARD, 160 patients with eosinophilia, 30 patients or 19%, 20% had allergic diseases, um, um, a few with bronchiectasis and lung disease, um, but 20 plus percent had intestinal parasites. And when those were cleared and treated, then the problem went away. Second would be atopic disease. Both eczema and asthma more likely to give you um, uh, eosinophilia at times 
and that needs to be factored in. But there's a lot of very old literature. I remember when I was doing my fellowship in the 80s, you would see these patients with you know, fairly high eosinophil counts, you know, above 10%, and they would stay high. And in the early days of when they were writing about this in the 70s and 80s, it was thought that this was a sign of more aggressive rheumatoid arthritis. When you looked at case series on this, you know, five patients, 40 patients, 100 patients, peripheral eosinophilia, which could be 20% to um, 80%, they had more severe articular disease. They were more likely to have extra articular manifestations, vasculitis, pleuritis, and subcutaneous nodules. They had elevated immunoglobulin levels across the board, leading some to suggest this was heightened immunologic activity in very severe patients, and that somehow resulted in more um, eosinophils being produced. Uh, again, whether or not this is associated with extra-articular manifestations has been a matter of debate. Again, literature in the 70s and 80s said, yeah, maybe more vasculitis, pleuropericardial disease, nodules, etc., but more recent data, where clearly we're being more aggressive, patients are not getting as severe. I mean, it shows up in clinic. When I was in my fellowship in 1984, the clinic was riddled with crutches, wheelchairs, and gurneys. I never see a gurney anymore. I seldom see a wheelchair. I rarely see a crutch. I see some canes, however. Ari's changed over time. Some more recent reports between 2015 and 2020, you're looking at series that basically show no association with extra articular manifestations. But it still does happen. It's usually related to atopic disease. Um, it may be related to more severe disease nonetheless. Um, there are those studies that show that these patients may have higher hack scores over time, may have... Um, other evidence, more likely to be on DMARD. So again, it can go along with aggressive disease, but it behooves you to look for background underlying disease that could be the cause of eosinophilia in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. That's it for QD Clinics today. Remember, Room Now Live, we answer your questions. Questions you say, that's right. Shorter lectures, a lot of Q&A, you know, we have these two-hour sessions called pods on RA, PSA, spa, vasculitis, lupus. And in that 120 minutes, we have three lectures and a panel and a total of 45 minutes devoted to audience, Q&A, and interaction. And it's even more if you count in the polling questions that the uh, speakers are going to do during their 25, 30-minute lectures. So a lot of interaction. Your answers are important to you and why shouldn't your question be taken and answered that's what we pay attention to at room now live tune in for more qd clinics this is qd clinic i'm jack Cush with room now qd clinic is brought to you by room now live in january you know this is a great board review course i'll tell you why at the end today's case is uh-oh scleroderma and I say, uh-oh, scleroderma, because when I see new scleroderma, I'm thinking to myself, uh-oh. Ask any rheumatologist, do you want to take care of 10 fibromyalgia patients or one diffuse systemic sclerosis patient? I mean, that's, that's an equation that you, that it's just mind-boggling. It's mind-bending. There is no right answer. They're both difficult. 
and scleroderma is difficult because we just don't have the answers we want. So let me give you a new case I saw in my approach to a new case. And at least this is how I start. You know, it's the management of all the ramifications and complications and extensions of disease in scleroderma that make it difficult. This is a young man, 40 years old, referred to me because he had a positive ANA and had to quit his job as a mechanic, could no longer use his hands. He, what he described was really bad rainouts, but also that he just couldn't open and close his hands. So his problems began maybe two years ago after COVID. Then he caught COVID. And after that, he got, and although COVID he got over with, a a few months later, really severe shortness of breath, dyspnea on exertion, um, uh, fatigue, and some chest pain. Went to the emergency room, no diagnosis. I'm not sure why. We have no records. Given a steroid shot, kind of got better. No more lung symptoms. But then, maybe a year ago, he starts in with... um, Noticing the hair on his arms and uh, in armpits and legs are going away. He develops a tightness in his hands with rain outs. Um, and this happens every day. He now has difficulty, um, you know, opening a water bottle or tying his shoelaces. He sees a primary care uh, doctor who puts him on very low dose hand, uh, a uh, calcium channel blocker and sends them to me. When I see him, he has serious, bad, three-plus, you know, leather-bound skin over the fingers. And when you do his, he's got scleroderma, sclerodactyly over the fingers, back of the hands, and even up to the um, forearms, not above the elbow, not on the face, not on the chest, abdomen, legs, ankles, or feet. He's got pretty severe rainouts, both blanching and reactive hyperemia erythema. No cyanosis. So he's got biphasic rainouts. When you look at his skin, his digital pulp on his fingertips, they're normal. He has no pitting scars, right? He has no loss of pulp in the fingers. Um, when you do a skin exam and quantify the amount of skin, exam, skin tightness, he has a modified Rodden skin score of 14 which that's a high number for me. And um, you should know how to do a modified Rodman skin score because it's the one tool you can do to follow people serially as they go on. When you, he has no swollen joints, no tender joints. Um, his fingers look a little sausage-like, I must say. And no, he cannot fully close his fingers and make a full fist. He has no tender points he has no other skin manifestations. His labs show a normal CBC, chem profile, a normal acute phase reactants. Um, he's got a TSH that's normal. A UA shows no proteinuria. Uh, his, he's not anemic. Uh, he has normal LFTs and albumin. His ANA is 1 to 320 in a nuclear pattern. Other autoantibodies were done and show him to have uh, negative SSA, SSB, negative SM and RNP, uh, negative for SCL70, normal sed rate CRP and a normal ferritin, no 
uh, sign a prior hep B or hep C infection, no sign of thyroid disease. So he has early scleroderma, at least a year old, maybe two years old. He has noticed change so that in the last month he's had to stop work. The question is, is he at the crossroads of, of limited disease, crest, which is scleroderma below the elbow and no other organ involvement? Or does he have more diffuse disease? Diffuse would be rec- suggested by a year ago, shortness of breath and dyspnea on exertion, but he doesn't have that now. Diffuse disease might be suggested by 30 pounds of weight loss I didn't tell you about, and he doesn't have anorexia. And no history of ulcer, not taking nonsteroidals. What's the weight loss all about? And what are you going to do with this guy to start with? And that's really what this case is about. What's your initial steps? You know, I'm calling this officially limited disease, but I'm very worried about diffuse disease. I explain the differences. The hardest part of this visit is explaining scleroderma, the two types, Potential for serious bad outcomes with a diffuse time. But that scleroderma is difficult to manage. Scleroderma doesn't have a known cure or treatment. So um, what am I going to do? My first order of business is um, to get him to the physical therapy. Teach him how to protect his skin. Try to improve hand mobility and skin tightness with local warmth hand warmers. You know, you can buy these USB charged um, hand warmers on Amazon for like 10 to 15 bucks. And patients can have them in their pocket and they can put them in their hands when they're getting bad rainouts. Second thing is I like to recommend my patients to try using, when their hands are like this guy's, paraffin wax baths. And if they've never had one or done one, they can go to a nail salon, get their nails done and ask for a paraffin wax treatment. And then if they like it and how it feels, then they can buy one for about 30 bucks and have one at home and use that twice a day. So physical therapy, um, advice on, on work and career, and then medicines. Uh, I'm of the belief, one, that there's no great medicine for scleroderma, and I've tried everything. I do believe the data uh, on limited and focal disease including morphia, on the efficacy of methotrexate. So I put all my patients on methotrexate as a first step. Methotrexate, usual doses, 15 to 20 milligrams a day with daily folate, giving them warnings about methotrexate. Um, My second therapy is if they have pain or joint problems, I deal with that, but I don't like to use non-steroidals. I certainly don't like to use steroids. I'll use analgesic drugs as best I can, Tylenol, Tramadol, etc., uh, will I ever use steroids in early scleroderma? Only if they have acute, new onset, incredibly puffy fingers and edema or sudden exacerbation, worsening of lung disease that I think uh, could be early uh, ILD or worse. So you evaluate that with imaging and maybe pulmonary, but I'll use steroids. And if I'm going to use steroids, I'm going to use high doses like 60, 40, 30, 20, 10, and whatnot. But I worry about steroid use in scleroderma and early scleroderma because I don't want to be a co-conspirator in the outcome of renal crisis. So no, I did not give this guy steroids. He had some aches and pains, but not much. Uh, He was not at the puffy stage. 
and by the way, I've given a lot of steroids in people who I thought might benefit from steroids because that's what literature says. I rarely have ever seen people do dramatically well from that initial course of steroids. Hence, I don't really believe in its use. So I have to be pushed to use that in the uh, in, in people that mm, I think might could benefit. Um, my la- my next most important thing is I'm worried about their vascular disease. As you know, scleroderma really isn't a fibrosis disease as much as it's a microvascular disease that drives fibrosis. Treat the underlying vasculopathy and maybe you'll have better outcomes. Hence, everybody that I diagnose with scleroderma goes on low-dose aspirin and low-dose statin, regardless of whether they have, you know, a hyperlipidemia. And I know you could say that's crazy, but you come up with your own crazy ideas because nothing works. So that's what I'm doing until someone comes up with a better idea. Low-dose statin has never gotten any of my patients in trouble. Also, everybody goes on either a calcium channel blocker, and I prefer those over ACE inhibitors to prevent renal crisis and to manage the possibility of a renal damage, but more importantly, to manage these symptoms. And you may have to drive the dose up to better manage their rain out symptoms and to stabilize that. So this guy went on a higher dose of a calcium channel blocker, aspirin, and a very low dose of lovastatin. Um, in the future, I, I tend to use jack inhibitors. I tend to even consider rituximab. I don't have any great solutions beyond that. As you know, the literature is horrible on this. Please come up with a solution. And really, my future in management is going to be based on what they have. GI symptoms, I'm doing H. pylori and sending them GI. And let them do H. pylori or endoscopy or further evaluations. Lung symptoms, it's pulmonary and, and, and rheumatology working together. Skin problems, I send them to dermatology. I have a lot of great dermatologists who really know how to manage scleroderma and its complications, including ulcers, including calcinosis, and I co-manage with them. But this is my early management of scleroderma. Tell me how you manage scleroderma when you meet me. Come to Room Now Live and meet me and tell me. Room Now Live is a great board review course. Why do I say that? Well, number one, it's easy. It's the cheaper than other of these regional arthritis review courses. It's one and a half days over the weekend. Um, there are state-of-the-art clinical updates given by world-class faculty where in the course of the, their great state-of-the-art lectures, you're going to ask all the questions that you want. We have modules, two-hour blocks on RA, um, PSA, spondyloarthritis, vasculitis, and a little more than a one-hour block on lupus. We have TED Talks, short talks on myositis, gout, immunosenescence, and managing um, the literature or critiquing the literature. Um, and in the end, uh, after the meeting, you'll get a bank of board questions from which you can study. Everybody that registers gets all this. Again, prepare for the boards. Come to Room Now Live, January 27, 28. Register at roomnow.live. And make your hotel appointment. Um, it gets more expensive after January 5th. Hi, Jack Cush here from Room Now with another QD Clinic. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live 2024 in Dallas in late January. Be there, register at roomnow.live. Usually, QD Clinics are lessons from the clinic, common cases, common problems, which require kind of thought and uh, a plan, 
um, I got an odd case, and I'm going to present it, and and I think I'm backed up by the literature. This is a case of lupus and psoriatic arthritis. Yes, together. What? 23-year-old gal diagnosed with lupus two years ago. Lupus based on polyarthralgias, polyarthritis, mainly PIPs and knees and a few other joints. Very strongly positive ANA, very strongly positive double-stranded DNA, normal complement levels, no proteinuria, very high CRP, uh, 4.5 milligram, milligrams per deciliter. That's like 45 milligrams per liter. Uh, alopecia, 30 pounds of weight loss, uh, lymphopenia, and rainouts. She's got a lot of arthritis and arthritis-related symptoms. But not at the first visit, because she was seen by someone else at the first visit, but I saw her the last three or four visits and found really impressive scalp and behind-the-ear plaque psoriasis, confirmed by a dermatologist. Um, she's got nail pitting. She doesn't have any truncal facial intertriginous uh, plaque psoriasis. And so the story is, what's the deal? She's been managed with as if she has just lupus until recently. And that means she was given hydroxychloroquine and then prednisone and then um, uh, azathioprine. So much so that she's on like five milligrams per kilogram of hydroxychloroquine, averaging 300 milligrams a day. She's on a hundred of azathioprine. She's taken five of prednisone. She takes some Tylenol. Uh, she still has swollen joints. She still has very active psoriasis. She's taken topical things for her psoriasis. The question is, can this happen? Why would this happen? I've taken care of 2,000 lupus patients in my lifetime, and God knows way more psoriatic arthritis, and I can't say I've ever had this combination before. But if you look in the literature, it exists. And, you know, the rationale for it existing is a little surprising to me. Um, one mistake would be to say, if you look at a cohort of PSA patients, will you find any lupus? And the answer is yes, because if you're using TNF inhibitors to treat the psoriasis or psoriatic arthritis, you'll get some drug-induced lupus, as we talked about earlier this week, from the TNF inhibitor. Um, but if you look at the opposite way, you do find a higher incidence of psoriasis. So it looks like there could be as much as a two-fold increased risk of getting lupus. And the numbers are really, really low. I mean, in this population-based study from 2021, there was 0.37% of the PSA patients had lupus and the control patient was 0.15. So a two-fold higher risk. Um, if you were going to have lupus without PSA, you were going to have more, many more autoantibodies than the ones um, associated. Uh, older age may be associated with this presence, and I don't rely on this. This lady has is really young, right? 23. So, you know, what about mechanistically? Well, if you look at a lot of the newer literature on the pathogenesis of lupus, there's a lot of talk about new roles for T-cells and TH17 cells and IL-17 and possibly IL-23 uh, or 1223, and that these should be new targets therapeutically to manage lupus. Um, so 
I have scratched my head a few times, um, but since I'm not getting anywhere with two visits, trying to rely on heavy treatment for, and I can't say I'm using heavy treatment, but what I think is effective treatment for lupus, now I'm going to go out and start targeting psoriatic arthritis. I'm not using IL-17 inhibitors as yet. I'm going to go with my JAK inhibitors as my first choice and with the idea that I can possibly get her off steroids, lower the hydroxychloroquine, get her off azathioprine, and see what that does. An interesting case, is it not? Hmm. An interesting meeting is Room Now Live. I want to let you know that what's distinctive about Room Now Live is many things, including these TED Talks we do. You know, we're famous for doing them. Nobody does them. These are 15-minute talks. Um, and this, this year we've got like seven or eight of them. And that includes, uh, and we, we want them to be in a TED-like format. They can be mini lectures. They can be inspirational kind of things, thought-provoking. Immunosenescence from Connie Wayand. Future of Gout from Lisa Stamp. Um, uh, preclinical Lupus, David Karp. Myths and Mistakes from the Medical Literature, Mike Putman. Uh, serologic Myositis Testing from uh, Lisa Christopher Stein. Um Ethics and Rheumatology, Artie Cavanaugh, Jack Cush on The Extraordinary Rheumatologist. I think these are really spicy, really interesting, really informative things that you'll find at Room Now Live. You won't find anywhere else. We'll see you in Dallas on January 27th and 28th. Welcome to QD Clinic. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live in Dallas, January 27th and 28th. Uh, we'll talk about those of you who want to attend virtually at the end. This cutie clinic is devoted to a case and a discussion I had just the other day about how to avoid knee replacement surgery. So the patient's an 83-year-old man who's had osteoarthritis of the knees and the hands, I must say, probably for 15 to 20 years. Hard to know. But... Um, he's previously managed by two other rheumatologists, previously just taken non-steroidals and some physical therapy, but never had injections, never had um, any advanced treatment besides over-the-counter therapy. So this has really been untreated. And the question is, you know, they come to me because they want injections and they uh, want injections because they don't want to have surgery. And he's been advised by two orthopedists and <clears throat> one rheumatologist, he should just go ahead and have the surgery and he'd do much better. And sure enough, the, this is a wiry, thin, 145-pound, uh, 83-year-old who's got bony hypertrophy in the knees, uh, flexion contractures of about five degrees in each of them. He walks with great difficulty and a cane um, and he doesn't want to have surgery. To back it up, he also has coronary artery disease and was told that he needs a cabbage and refused to have that done. So he's not necessarily the best patient. But this issue comes up. Should How do you avoid the knee replacement in someone who really needs it? And his x-rays <clears throat> show significant, nearly bone-on-bone -bone narrowing of the medial joint space. Lateral spaces in itself got its own problems. There may be some chondrocalcinosis going on there, but he's also 83 years old. I don't know that that's his primary disease. 
Um, so he's got the damage. He's got the pain. He's got the dysfunction. What are we waiting for here? How do you avoid knee replacement? My point is don't. And age is not a restriction to uh, against having um, surgery that you badly need. I always point out that the famous comedian Bob Hope had his hip replaced at 91 when he was had significant dementia. And he lived almost, I think, another eight years. But guess what? He lived without significant hip pain um, in that eight-year period. And that was quality of life. So age is not a restriction. Get the surgery. You, you know, sometimes patients just need to be told to do it. But obviously, if there's restrictions as to why they shouldn't do it, you need to inform them of that. I um, Someone reminded me yesterday that I'm, I'm famous for saying something like, you ain't doing nothing. If you ain't doing nothing, you ain't doing no good. Meaning, if your choice is, I ain't going to do anything, well, then you're not really doing any good to the patient. Sometimes you just got to make a decision. And every patient that gets signed up for joint replacement has second doubts, wants to back out, wants to delay it. Maybe I can wait till next year. Let's wait until spring break when, uh, you know, they got stupid, crazy excuses. Just bite the bullet and do it. And I can say that with great confidence because I was one of these people. And I had my knees replaced almost 10 years ago. And I talked myself out of getting knee replacement, even though I had a horrible, you know, osteoarthritis of the knees. Um, And I'm so glad I did it. So, again, drug therapy gives you, you know, a margin of benefit that's this big. Um, Compared to drug therapy for OA, joint replacement is about 100 times better. Now, there's always a risk for side effects and complications and post-operative pain. But can you delay it? So this patient came in and they wanted to have knee injections. I got to tell you, I'm really good at getting a needle into a really small space without using an ultrasound. And I got it into one knee with no problem. And I barely got it into the other knee with a great deal of difficulty. So if I'm going to do that again, I'm going to have to use ultrasound to do that. Um, So one way is, you know, use corticosteroid injections, but I don't like to do those repeatedly. I'll do it once, twice, and then you should have surgery. Um, What else can you do? Well, in many people, if they're not 83 and rail thin, weight loss helps significantly. Physical therapy helps significantly. Unloader knee braces can help significantly by changing a significant varus deformity to get you back to normal and unload that medial joint space. Um, And then for people of mild OA, unilateral without significant um, malalignment and, and a varus deformity or valgus deformity, you might do a partial joint replacement done by arthroscopy. Um, it's a, my, I mean, it's a go home the same day procedure, and it works very well. I don't think it works as well as total joint replacement, but there's some people who may be ideal candidates, but they're not the majority. It's only a few people. So the point is, how do you avoid knee replacement surgery? Um, you don't. You know, it, you got to pick your your poison. It's either the pain of advanced joint disease or It's the mental anguish of having the surgery plus the recuperation. These are difficult decisions, and they are going to rely on you, the expert, 
and your experience with your other patients on how they can navigate that conundrum. That's it. Um, I will remind you that Room Now Live is a hybrid meeting for the sixth year in a row. We'll live stream this meeting to about three to four hundred of you who'll sign up from around the world and watch this meeting. The experience from home is as good as the experience in the room. Uh, there's a lot of online discussion and chat about the lectures and the questions uh, for the online audience. We are this year trying to do something we started last year by having our speakers, including the virtual speakers, get online with the online audience to discuss their presentations and answer their questions specifically amongst that online community. Um, I think you'll find it interesting if you can't make the trip to Dallas on January 27th or 28th. Register at roomnow.live. Take care.